Now, what we're going to do now is I'm going to hand over to the Bible reader. Rachel's going to read the next part for us. It's going to be in John chapter 14 from verse 5 onwards. I'll give you a moment or two to find that place right there. John chapter 14, it's going to be verse 5 onwards into that chapter. So I'm going to hand over to Rachel for that. And I wonder if you notice the continuation of the cat theme this morning. So over to Rachel and then to Peter. The reading this morning is from John's Gospel, St. John chapter 14 and starting at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be back with you again and be back with you coming from my living room. I'm sure many of you will recognize uh, my living room if you've been with us over the past year, really, or in any of the early lockdowns. We've been sort of filming from my living room and I'm back here uh, this morning. Now, the reason for that is because this last weekend I was able to fly back to the U.S., to spend some time with my family. Uh, my grandfather's in hospice care at the moment. And so it was a hard weekend, but a really special weekend to be able to be back home with them. So I just wanna say thank you for all your prayers, all your messages of encouragement, for looking out for Emily in Virginia as I was away. I appreciate it so, so much. And I've returned back, but now I'm in quarantine and thus we're in my living room again this morning. And it's almost a little bit fitting for where we are this morning in John's gospel. It's a setting not that different to where we find Jesus and the disciples huddled together. Now, if you can remember, Jesus' ministry at this point in John's gospel is coming towards its end, towards its climax. And Jesus, who knows what's about to happen, what's just around the corner, he takes his disciples, he huddles them together together to give them words of peace and comfort and assurance. Now, the beginning of this section in John's gospel starts at the very beginning of chapter 13. In verse 1, we read these words at the beginning of this section. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour 
had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Knowing that Judas would betray him, knowing that Peter would deny him, knowing that just about every disciple except for John would abandon him, Jesus still gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes their feet. He even gives them a glimpse at their own failures and to know what is about to happen. And yet it says he loves them to the very end. You see, it seems that being imperfect, being afraid, being worried, having failed, does not discount you from the comforts of Christ. In fact, oftentimes, it's in fact what qualifies you in need of hearing the comforts of Christ, which I'm sure some of, some of us need to hear this morning. So today, we're picking up this story really in mid-conversation as the disciples are grasping for clarity to understand what exactly is going on. Because what Jesus is saying sounds really confusing and really odd. What he's saying doesn't seem to make that much sense. Maybe Jesus has sounded like that to you before. That's what it sounds like for the disciples. So to get some context, because we're picking this up mid-conversation, we're just going to read the verses we read last week. So chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, to give us some context. So chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Okay, so far, so good. By leaving, Jesus is preparing a place at the Father's house for his disciples. Makes sense. It's hard, but it makes sense until we come to the last sentence in verse 4. It's as if he wants the disciples to be a little bit confused. The end of verse 4. And he says, And you know the way to where I'm going. What? You can imagine the disciples sort of suddenly turning to one another. I, I don't know what he's talking about. Do you know what he's talking about? Oh, did I miss something? I fell asleep during one of his last teaching sessions. I knew I should have kept awake. Or does someone know? Does anyone have directions? What is Jesus talking about? How do we know the way? It's a feeling when the teacher gives a pop quiz at the end of class and everyone's scrambling to scan through everything they have been taught. But none of the disciples really agree with Jesus. And so Thomas steps up. We hear Thomas speak in verse 5. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? In other words, give me the details, Lord. How is this going to work? Are we taking your car, Jesus? Or are we going to get an Uber? Can you tell me what address to put in Google Maps? We don't know this way to the Father you're talking about. Now, I'm sure many of you have been driving on road trips and you know what it's like and the frustration to have someone else navigating for you. Am I meant to get over now? Is this the right exit? Just, just let me see the GPS. Thomas wants specific instructions, which is what I think all of us want, isn't it? We want to take the phone out of everyone's hand and scroll through and see where the blue line leads us, which prompts Jesus's famous answer in verses 6 and 7. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. The disciples, it seems, have become so preoccupied with the geographic location of the Father's house 
that they become so narrowly focused on the mechanics of how to get there. They missed where they were going. This is not primarily a journey to a GPS coordinate. This is a journey into the divine fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there's only one way into that fellowship, into that location of abundant, overflowing love and wholeness, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Notice what Jesus doesn't say, though. He doesn't say, well, there's a couple of ways you could go, a couple of ways to the Father, or I know some truths that might help you, or I have some life experience. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, I am a way, a truth, and a life. Nor does he even say, I know the way, and I know the truth, and I know the life. No, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. This is Jesus giving us his own self-definition. The way, the truth, and life is not some hidden knowledge that Jesus gives us. It is himself. And this is a complete and exclusive claim. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this exclusivity might sound a little bit unsettling to modern ears, to our ears, but it was no less unsettling to hear this in the first century. There's an author by the name of Larry Hurtado, who's written a really helpful book that I really highly suggest um, called The Destroyer of the Gods, How Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Modern World. And in this book, he writes this question that we think is a normal question, do you believe in God, was almost never asked in the Roman world. The question that was asked is, well, which God do you believe in and have loyalty to? He writes this. He says, individual pagans at the time did not feel it obligatory to reverence each and every deity, but in principle, all gods were entitled to be reverenced. So the people of the Roman period generally found no problem participating in the worship of various and multiple deities. There was no worry that any one deity would be offended if you offered worship to other deities as well. Indeed, for the people in the Roman era, generally, piety meant a readiness to show appropriate reverence for the gods and for all of the gods. There was almost a, a cafeteria of gods to choose from. And Christianity's exclusive claim, found here in Jesus' words, sounded irreligious and superstitious to the Roman world. It's the reason that many G Jesus followers in the first century were called atheists, because they denied the divinity of all the gods. This exclusive claim disrupted the Roman world. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hurtado shows that actually Jesus was indeed the destroyer of the gods, because only in a couple of centuries, only Judaism and Christianity survived amongst the pantheon of the gods. But today, 20 centuries later, we don't really ask that question, do we? Which God do you believe in? In our secular world, most of us presume that someone might be religious if they might go to church every once in a while, or maybe they try meditation, then we might call them spiritual or religious. The majority of people would say they don't believe in a God. However, we might just be as religious as we were in the first century. Just last year, an author named David Zoll uh, wrote a new book called Seculosity, which sounds a lot like religiosity, with the subtitle, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion. So all proposes that in our secular world, we are no less religiously fanatic as was first century Rome. 
He says the religious impulse is much easier to rebrand than to extinguish. This is how he defines religion. He says religion is what we lean on to tell us we're okay, that our lives matter. Another name for all the ladders we spend climbing toward a dream of wholeness. It refers to our preferred guilt management system. Our religion is the justifying story of our life. You see, in the first century, we bargained with the gods to get what we wanted. Nowadays, though, we bargain with the inner accountant, the inner gods that live within us all. And the thing we're after, Zal calls enoughness. Enoughness. He says, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, the loneliness, the exhaustion, and the division that plagues our current moment at such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that we, were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. And so he says, we basically work out our salvation of enoughness in every facet of our lives, constantly looking over our shoulder to see where we are in relation to other people. Our entire lives are graded by the gods, our gods of success, happiness, materialism, and wealth. People are still looking for the way, the truth, and the life, enoughness, a welcome into the fellowship of the divine. And yet we're more anxious, more tired, and more depressed than ever. Maybe you feel that way. Well, Jesus speaks to us this morning. Come, follow me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It might remind us of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Thank God there really is a way that leads to life, but it, we're told it's small. That's not to say you have no hope in finding it, but that it is unique and it is specific in contrast to the broad way that leads to destruction that many people find themselves walking down. The exclusive claim that Jesus makes to Thomas, that he is indeed the only way to the Father, it rattles us, doesn't it? But if we allow ourselves to be confronted by it, we will find that it is a sweet thought to know that there really is a way that leads to life. In Jesus, there is a comforting assurance for us. One of the earliest church fathers, John Chrysostom, comments on this passage, and he reminds us of Jesus' audience here. He says, Jesus does not hurl this Christo-exclusive text into the face of the world to taunt it, but rather he gives this to his disciples to encourage them. And he gives this to us this morning. So which gods are you trusting in today? What salvation of enoughness are you trusting in today? You can let go of them and find whatever it is you're looking for, whatever it is you're trying to earn, is already available to us in Christ. The journey into the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is through Jesus alone. Jesus is the only way to the Father. But secondly, we see that Jesus is the true image 
of the Father in verses 8 to 11. Would you read that, those verses with me, starting in verse 8? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me who does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. I love it. It's so relatable. Disciples are still confused. And here we see Philip's tired but honest request to Jesus, one that I'm sure many of us can relate to. Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us, and we won't ask for any more favors. Try it out for a second. Leave that middle part blank and fill it in. Lord, and it would be enough, and I won't ask any more favors. Philip wants a direct revelation of God. Now, many people liken Philip's request here to the request we see that Moses asks of God. Maybe you'll remember the story. Moses asks God, Lord, just show me your glory. We know the story of God putting him in a cleft of a rock and passing by so that Moses can just see God's back. Philip begs Jesus, Lord, just show us the Father, and that would be enough for our troubled hearts. And Jesus' answer to Philip is baffling. Take a look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We are told that to see Jesus is to see the Father. Philip, you are looking at him. Jesus continues in verse 10 and 11, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells and does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. It's as if Jesus is troubled and he's grieved by Philip's request. And the implication is that fellowship with Jesus loses all of its significance if he is not recognized as the one whose intention is to reveal the Father. So why is this so important? <laughs> because it seems important to Jesus that we get this, isn't it? I mean, the Father's mentioned 11 times in these short nine verses. Well, it's important because the purpose of the Son is to reveal the Father. If you've seen Jesus and you still really want to see the real God, you've missed the point. To see Jesus is to see the Father, and Jesus is the true image of the Father. This is the, John's main point of the gospel. The very beginning of John's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, we read these words. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus puts a face on God for us. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. And we all with unveiled faces are contemplating the Lord's glory. Philip, as you look into my face, you see what Moses dreamt of seeing, the glory of God. 
You can almost hear Jesus pleading, what do I need to do to convince you? Believe in the works or believe in the words. I speak what I hear the Father speaking. I do what the Father tells me to do. This is what the heart of what Jesus has come to do, to reveal God to us. The problem is, like Philip, we're very hesitant to actually believe that God really is like Jesus. There must be something more, something we're missing, we might think. Or there must be another side of God that's unlike Jesus. When we say God, many times, a different picture pops into our minds than Jesus. And that's precisely the problem. That's what Jesus wants Philip to get his head around. Whoever's seen Jesus has seen the Father. We don't have to guess what God is like anymore. To put it really simply, God is Christ-like. God is Christ-like. A Scottish theologian named Thomas Torrance put it like this. He says, God is not one thing in himself and another thing in Jesus Christ. What God is towards us in Jesus, he is inherently and eternally in himself. There's thus no God behind the back of Jesus Christ, but only this God whose face we see in the face of our Lord Jesus. The constancy of God in time and eternity has to do with the fact that God really is like Jesus. For there is no other God than he who became man in Jesus, and he who, whom God affirms himself to be and always be in Jesus. You get that? There's no God behind the back of Jesus. There's no shadowy figure or dark, or dark spots in God of which we need to be afraid. We run into many problems when we speak about God unconnected to Jesus. We tend to fill in our portrait with guesses of what a supreme being must be like whether that's an unconnected, unmoved being, whether that be a vengeful and uncaring God, or whether that be just a God made in our own image, a larger version of ourselves that just lets anything go. Many times we assume that we have the same God in mind when we ask one another, so do you believe in God? Let me illustrate. A friend of mine um, who grew up in church, like myself, um, was really struggling to continue in his faith in our late teen years, and I felt like he was about to leave the church and Christianity completely. And so an older youth leader, uh, who I respected, ended up grabbing coffee with this friend and just spending time and chatting with him. And within a week, I noticed there was a change in my friend. And I asked my youth leader, I said, well, what did you say to him? Because I've tried talking to him so many times. And he said, well, I asked him what was going on. And he was really honest. And he said, I just don't think I believe in God anymore. And the youth leader said, okay, well, tell me about this God that you don't believe in anymore. So he spent five minutes talking about this God he was struggling to believe in. And after he finished, the youth leader stopped and told him, this might surprise you, but I don't believe in that God either. See, the God he was struggling to believe in was not anything like what we see of Jesus in the Gospels. His God was a collage of images and ideas he'd picked up over time from family, from movies, from poorly led Bible studies. You see, I think there's something true about that. I have a feeling that this is the case for many people who finally say, I don't believe in God. I could never believe in God. Ask them to tell you about this God they, might, you, they don't believe in. You might be able to say back, I don't believe in that God either. Only in Jesus found in the scriptures do we see the true image of the Father. As one theologian said, in every thought of God, we should set Christ before us. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Second, 
It's essential to know that Jesus is the true image of the Father, especially when it comes to Jesus' greatest work for us, his work on the cross. Now, we've seen Jesus emphasize time and time again that his action and his works are united to the Father's action and his works. However, a subtle but very significant division between the Father and the Son happens oftentimes when we think about salvation and how God saves us. There's this tendency, I think many of us have, to separate the Father and the Son at the cross. Sometimes we assume that the Son is the one concerned about grace and forgiveness and love, and the Father is the one concerned about holiness and justice and wrath. When that division happens, it makes the promise of Jesus departing to the Father sound a little bit unappealing to us. In reality, both the Father, Son, and the Spirit are concerned about all of those things, and all of them together are working out our salvation and to bring us into the divine fellowship. John Stott, uh, who's a theologian and a pastor, he helpfully says this. He says, when we see Jesus on the cross, we must never think of Jesus persuading the Father to love us. Many people have that in their mind. So one of the Bible verses that most of us know by heart says, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son. John Calvin puts it like this, God does not love us because he has reconciled us to himself. It is because he loved us that he reconciles us to himself. God's love is the source of the atonement, not its consequence. The consequence is that we get to draw near to God, to this God of love, because of the blood of Jesus that washes away all of our sins. And we are united to his saving work and we are welcomed into the loving arms of the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working together in love to reconcile the world and save the world. John Owen, a Puritan writer, says it, puts it like this, The Father is the source of all the love we see in Christ. And so we are not to think of him as aloof or uncaring. The greatest unkindness you can do to the Father is to refuse to believe that he loves you. You can in no way, he says, more trouble or burden him. He desires us and he adopts us and is our Father. The Father's will is to save the world and welcome you into this relationship he has with the Son and the Spirit. And it is this Father that Jesus perfectly reveals to us. As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. As Paul writes in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There's no God behind the back of Jesus. The glory of God is displayed in the face of Jesus to us. Philip, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We've seen now that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We've also seen that he is the true image of the Father. And now finally, we see that he invites us into the life and the work of the Father. Take a look at verses 12 to 14. Starting verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, Jesus makes quite an astounding claim here. Philip, Thomas, the rest of the disciples, and anyone who believes in him, he will do greater works than Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That sounds a little bit overboard, Jesus, doesn't it? Or is he serious? If he's serious, this if he's serious, does that mean that we should be doing something greater than raising the dead or healing the blind or forgiving sins? I mean, how many dead people have you raised this week? 
And I don't think probably very many. If, if that were the case, I don't think any of us would be a proof of Jesus' promise to us here. No, almost all commentators agree about what Jesus' promise here means. The greater works don't compare qualitatively greater to Jesus' works, but quantitatively greater. That is, no one work of the disciples will outshine Jesus' works, but the disciples' work will be a vast and greater addition to Jesus's, both in number and in geographic location. I mean, think about the situation that the disciples find themselves in. Again, Jesus is sitting in this upper room and he's telling his disciples that he's going to be betrayed, that they're going to deny him, that they're going to abandon him. And soon he's going to die. So the question is, is this the end of the works? Will there be anything left of the Jesus movement in a year's time, or is this all just going to fizzle out? No, the works of Jesus will carry on in all those who believe that he truly is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we sit here today in Britain, 20 centuries later, you and I are living proof of this promise, that the ministry of Jesus has far surpassed the 50 miles that he traveled while he was here on earth. Why? Because the words and the works of the Father have been perfectly displayed in the Son, and all of us who put our faith in Jesus have been included into the life of God who seeks to save this world. Notice, though, who it is who's doing the works. In verse 12, we read, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. That's you and me. We're doing the works. But then look in verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask me for anything in my name, I will do it. So is it we who are doing the works of Christ? Or is it Christ doing the works for us? Answer, yes. Yes. It is a mirror of the, how the Father works in the Son in verse 10. Notice in verse 10 it says, The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and does his works. Now, next week, we're going to see how it is that God actually dwells within us. But today, the point is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, alone as the true way to the Father, who perfectly shows us who God is, then we are caught up into the life and the work of God for the world. If you believe in Jesus today, you will do greater works than these. Not by any strength of your own, not by any willpower of your own, not because you are enough or have enough, but because you believe in Jesus as we see in verse 13, you ask. Praying and asking. Praying in the name of Jesus is the door into the life of God. The only thing we do in this situation is ask. Jesus does not seem to be afraid to put his faithfulness on the line here. He's perfectly happy to promise that he will do it. Now, that does not mean that I would get a Mercedes in my driveway by tomorrow if I ask. But it does mean that when we ask for Jesus' kingdom, of glory to set up shop in our own lives, the lives of our friends, our family members, we know that we are praying to a God who is big enough, who is able. Now, there are many good definitions of prayer, but I think one of the best ones I've heard is this. It's speaking to God about what we're doing together. Prayer is speaking to God about what we're doing together. And we see that here in the, end, in the middle of chapter 14 of John's Gospel. So this morning, if the thought of prayer just fills your mind with a dullness, may you be surprised by the God who nudges you. Go ahead. Ask me. I'll, I'll do it.
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. So, this morning, with the words of Jesus on our lips that we find in the scriptures, with the promise of Jesus ringing in our ears, may we ask him today, what can you ask of Jesus today? Today, when so many people are exhausted and disillusioned, living in sin and living in fear, trying to placate the inner accountant who are seeking to be enough, to be wealthy enough, to be secure enough, to be happy enough, desired enough, and good enough. In a world where religion runs loose into every facet of our lives, may the Lord give us a faith and the boldness to proclaim that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. And as we look at the cross May we get a glimpse of the holy love of God that dies on our behalf so that we might live. And may we ask boldly in his name to do his work in us, to proclaim the good news that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. We're going to do that right now and pray before we sing. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you as your sons and daughters in Jesus' name. Lord, we want to ask that your work would be performed in our lives. We ask that we would learn to live under your heavenly rule in our lives. Father, we want to ask that your words of life that we find in the scriptures would dwell deeply in our hearts and our minds. They'd be in our lips and ready to speak them. Lord, we think of our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, the world we live in who is exhausted by the demands of the other gods. And so we ask, would you give us a boldness and a deep-seated desire to speak your truth of grace into these people's lives? Lord, we want to ask for your help in it. You tell us to come and ask you, to even bother you. So we're doing that right now. Would your kingdom be established in our lives by your grace, by your spirit, and in your power? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.